Hi everyone and welcome. You know what time it is? Do you know what day it is? Well, of course you do. It's Wednesday, December 6th, and it's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's great to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join us. We're continuing in our study of the book of James. In fact, we're starting the last chapter. Today in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, we're going to study two more incredible topics. The first, a warning to the rich, and second, patience in suffering. In a nutshell, here's what we're talking about. Wealth can be a great blessing when it's used in a way that's pleasing to God. Unfortunately, wealth can also be abused as people use the power that money brings to exercise control over others. However, one day there will be a day of judgment and God hears the cries of the oppressed. In the meantime, James encourages us to be patient as we wait for the Lord's return. We're going to unpack all of that shortly, but before we do, would you join me in an opening word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we celebrate you, we worship you, and we thank you for your amazing grace and love. Lord, teach us today as we continue our journey through the book of James in James chapter 5. All of this we ask and pray in the mighty name of Jesus, in his name, amen and amen. All right, turn in your Bible or Bible apps to James chapter 5, and let's start with our first question today. These first six verses in James 5, now we're going to study all 12, but the first six verses... James is talking about a warning that he's giving to the rich. So let's dive right into that with verse number one. Are you ready? Here we go. James 5 verse 1. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Here's our first question. James begins a new section of his letter with a harsh condemnation here in this verse. To whom is he talking to and what misery is headed their way? First off, James is addressing rich people. These are probably not believers, but rich non-believers. In other words, wealthy landowners, perhaps the same people he referred to in chapter two, verse six. These rich people have lavish surroundings, plenty of food and plenty of money, but there are terrible troubles ahead of them, as the verse says, and not earthly suffering here, but eternal suffering. And James says they should weep and groan with anguish for what they will soon lose. The words weep and groan were often used in the Old Testament by the prophets to describe the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, arrives. Jesus said that those who would be excluded from God's kingdom would be weeping and gnashing their teeth. Verse 2 is next. It reads, Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Here's the question. James continues his condemnation of this group of rich people toward the believers. How does he describe their wealth and clothing? And what does it mean? James' point is not to condemn all wealthy people or all wealth. Rather, James is targeting a particular group of people. These are those rich people who have allowed their wealth to control them and warp their minds. The instability of wealth is the clearest warning of the coming troubles for the rich. While James's references to wealth rotting away and clothes being moth-eaten could be literal, but I think it's more figurative. I think he's saying that these things are not a permanent part of life. The money, security, lavishness, and self-indulgence are as good as rotted or moth-eaten. Because why? Because they can't do anything for these people in eternity. Next is verse 3. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. As James continues... What does he say will happen to these people's wealth, and how does this relate to the day of judgment? Precious metals will corrode over time, especially if they're not used. In this verse, James says wealth becomes worthless if not used to help people. 
He warns that even what seems to be indestructible, in this verse gold and silver, it's doomed if it's not put to good use. The uselessness of hoarded gold and silver will eat away at them in hell. It will reveal the greed, selfishness, and wickedness of the rich. They failed to do good with what they had, and that was sin. Now, few people in the Western world can read this passage with understanding and not be at least singed by its truth. We've probably added a new dimension to the problem in that we have not hoarded in order to preserve for later. Instead, we've hoarded in order to waste. Believers today find themselves participating in society's tendency to consume as much as possible without regard to the conditions elsewhere in the world, or even what we will leave to our children and grandchildren. Will not our treasure testify against us on the day of judgment, as the scripture says? Next is verse 4. It reads, For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. The question is, here James doesn't just charge these abusive rich men with neglect and selfishness, but with what? There's something else he's charging them with. What is it? The short answer is cheating. These field workers worked for rich people during the day and would be paid at the end of each day. They were poor peasants. Most likely they had been forced off their own land by foreclosures, and then they had hired themselves back to the person who owned the property. They lived on the verge of starvation. Today's wages bought tomorrow's food. If a worker didn't receive his pay, his whole family went hungry. If the owner refused to pay, there was little or nothing the worker could do. The money that should have gone to the workers is also evidence against these rich people. And the cries of the field workers would have reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. The only resource for the poor then was to call out to God. Beloved, if we're facing oppression, faith requires that we remember God is our strength and our defender. Temporary circumstances don't change the fact of God's sovereignty. God will protect us from spiritual evil in this life and will give the joys we desire in the next. He will ensure that justice will be gone and he will judge the oppressors. Amen to that. Verse 5 is next. It reads, You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. The question is, in this verse, James continues to use sharp, cutting imagery to drive home his point. What is he saying here? The lifestyles of the rich and famous may make it for interesting media gossip, but they are toxic to God. These rich who have taken the land from the poor and then refused to pay their deserved wages have shown gross lack of concern and selfishness. To this, they have added an attitude of wastefulness and self-indulgence that God detests. A life of luxury and satisfying every desire is basically worthless. Money will mean nothing when Christ returns, so we should spend our time accumulating treasures that will be worthwhile in God's eternal kingdom. As I said earlier, money itself is not the problem. Christian leaders need money to live and support their families. Missionaries need money to help them spread the gospel. Churches need money to do their work effectively. It's the love of money that leads to evil. We talked about that in our study of Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10. And it causes some to oppress others to get more. This is a warning to all Christians who are tempted to adopt worldly standards rather than God's standards and an encouragement to all those who are oppressed by the rich. For these rich people, their treasure is worldly wealth. They have enjoyed life, feasting as they would on the day when an animal is slaughtered. Ironically, James says that they are like fatted animals ready for the slaughter when the day of God's judgment comes. Verse 6 is next. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. The question here is, 
In this last verse of this section, James offers his final charge against the wealthy oppressors he's been condemning. What does he say? The condemning and killing of innocent people probably was both active and passive. People who may have been considered inconvenient or inconsequential may in fact have been murdered, but also the poor people who could not pay their debts were thrown into prison or forced to sell all their possessions. With no means of support and no opportunity to even work off their debts, these poor people and their families often died of starvation. God also considered this murder. Either way, it's an unjust system and it was legal. The poor had no power to defend themselves. Their only recourse then, once again, was to cry out to God. Now that completes the first part of our study of these 12 verses. This first section talked about a warning to the rich. Well, James continues here in verses 7 through 12, and he encourages these believers by talking about patience in suffering. Let's see what he says. Verse 7. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who wait patiently for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. Here's our question. What is the first thing James encourages the believers to do and why? The believers are to be patient even in the midst of injustice. The believers need to endure, trust in God through their trials, and refuse to try to get even for wrongs committed against them. But patience does not mean inaction. There was work to be done, serving God, caring for one another, and proclaiming the good news. There's an end point, though, a time when patience will no longer be needed, and that is the Lord's return. At that time, everything will be made right. The early church lived in constant expectation of Christ's return, and so should we. Because we don't know when Christ will return to bring justice and remove oppression, we've got to wait. We must wait with patience. As an example of patience, James talks about the farmer who must patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. Patience must be exercised and developed between the rains. Even non-farmers have plenty of opportunities to develop patience. The waiting for the arrival of a baby, starting a new job, finishing school, waiting for a loved one's visit, slowly improving health during a prolonged illness. All these situations and more try our patience. We will exercise patience as we concentrate on the end result of our waiting. God's way is seldom the quick way, beloved, but it's always the complete way. Verse 8 is next. You too must be patient, James says. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. The question is, instead of being like the rich people of verse 5, who fatted their hearts on the wealth of this world, what does James say the believers should look to now? James said the believers are to allow the assurance of Christ's return to help them be patient and to take courage. Whatever the circumstances, James encourages us to be rock solid in our faith and to have a faith-inspired joy that permeates every part of life. Like the farmer, we invest a long time in our future hope. The farmer is at the mercy of the weather. It is outside of their control, in other words. But we do know that the coming of the Lord is near. Amen, beloved. Amen, for sure and for sure. Verse 9 says, Don't grumble about each other, brothers or sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Question here. As these believers are waiting for the Lord's return, how does James say these believers are to strengthen their hearts? James warns the believers not to grumble against and or criticize each other. James doesn't want them to be filled with resentment and bitterness toward each other. That would only destroy the unity they so desperately needed. Refusing to grumble about each other is part of what it means to be patient. Grumbling against one another indicates a careless attitude of speech. Because of the dangers created by our speech, we can't afford to be lax in the way we speak to and about one another. James has already mentioned the great judge. 
This judge is not far away, but standing at the door, he said. James is warning believers not to be in the middle of judging, quarreling, criticizing, or gossiping when the one they should be serving returns. Knowledge of Christ's presence is not only comforting, it can also be convicting, especially when we begin behaving as if he were far away. Verse 10 is up next. It says, For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here's the question. In this verse, James offers another example of patience. Who does he say the believer should look to? Jewish Christians knew the stories of the prophets, many of whom suffered greatly or were killed for proclaiming God's message. James is reminding his readers that even those who spoke in the name of the Lord had to have patience in suffering. Part of his point is that God does not preserve from suffering those he's called. Instead, he preserves them in suffering. They're an example to all believers because of their obedience and faithfulness, despite the hardships they endured. Verse 11 is next. It says, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. The question is, in this verse, James is leading his readers to apply the lessons from the Old Testament by talking about a specific man. What is his name? And why do you think James chose to speak of him? James brings up Job, an excellent example of patience. Job's life is an example we need to follow. Job may have complained, and we know he did, but he did not stop trusting or obeying God. And the Lord did deliver and restore him. In like fashion, James was encouraging the believers not to give up, though they had and were going through a lot because God would deliver and reward them as well. We can see clearly from Job's life that perseverance is not the result of understanding. Job never received an explanation from God for his suffering. This is partly because pain is often a part of life that must be endured beyond explanations. There are many things that we can understand, but not everything. God's purpose is not that we just develop a mind full of explanations and answers. His purpose is to bring us to a place where we trust him. God does not enjoy watching his people suffer. He allows them to face such pain because of a greater good that's going to be produced. In the meantime, James encourages his readers to trust in God, wait patiently, persevere, and remember God's tenderness and mercy. And now, beloved, the last verse for today, verse 12, it says, But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else, just a simple yes or no, so that you will not sin and be condemned. At first glance, this verse seems a bit out of place because it doesn't flow smoothly from what James was just talking about. And yet, what do you think is the point? And why would James be talking about this right here? James is referring to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 34 to 37. Let me read that for you. This is Matthew 5, 34 to 37. Jesus says, But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Taking oaths was a common practice back in Bible days, and James wanted it discontinued among the believers. People made disrespectful or arrogant verbal guarantees that they themselves could reverse by legal technicalities. Like bold-faced warranties with lots of fine print, these oaths were intended to create an impression of truth, but those who uttered them did not really expect to be held to them. 
Christians should never need to take an oath in order to guarantee the truth of what they say. Our honesty should be unquestionable. Believers should not need oaths, for their speech should always be truthful. There should be no reason for them to have to strengthen a statement with an oath. God himself will judge our words. So that brings the question, should we take oaths in court? The oaths forbidden here in this verse and in this time were those used in casual conversation, not formal oaths taken in a court of law. Legal oaths are intended to bind those who make them. Perjury is a serious offense. Most scholars conclude that James is not requiring us to refuse taking oaths in court or similar circumstances, like when you take an oath to join the military or some other kind of a job circumstance. A person with a reputation for exaggeration or lying often can't get anyone to believe him on his word alone. For example, this person might say, I promise, or I swear. Christians should never become like that. Always be honest so that others will believe your simple yes or no. By avoiding lies, half-truth, and omissions of the truth, you'll become known as a trustworthy person as well. Well, folks, I know this was just a short time, but that's half of James chapter 5. We are complete for the day. Amazing that we're talking about a warning to the rich and then for those who are suffering to have patience and longevity in that hope for the Lord. Next week, we're going to complete James chapter 5 verses 13 to 20, and that means we'll also complete our study of the book of James. I'm excited that we're going to get to the end of this with you. So thanks for being with us today. We look forward to seeing you again next time. Have a great and amazing rest of your day and week. Take care. God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.